Niccolo Machiavelli was born in 1469 in Florence, in what is today Italy. Though he wrote some other works as well, today we're going to be looking at his most famous piece of writing, which is The Prince. And by the time he had a draft of it in 1513, when he was about 44 years old, he had done quite a bit of political work and had a lot of experience. That is worth acknowledging because it shows that his writing, his thoughts, which are somewhat controversial, did not spring purely out of his own mind. They came from this political experience that he had. So we can go quickly over some of the main points of his professional life in order to get a sense of that experience, and also some of the context of the time that he was living in. In 1494, when he was about 25 years old, King Charles VIII of France invaded Italy with 25,000 men, driving out the House of Medici, who had been ruling in Florence, and beginning a period of violence that would later be called the Italian Wars, though it's also called the Habsburg-Valois Wars. And this period would not end for 65 years, more than three decades after Machiavelli's death. This was a very unstable period for Italy as the Valois of France and the Habsburgs of the Holy Roman Empire backed various Italian states against each other. And you will remember from our discussion of Erasmus that this was also the beginning of the Reformation. Martin Luther published the 95 Theses in 1517, which is a couple decades later, but that would overlap with the second half of this very long period of war. And so that would give this fighting a religious angle that would make it only all the more brutal, though it wasn't fundamentally religious. It was more political. Machiavelli wrote of these wars, and it's also unavoidable that his living much of his adult life, nearly all of his adult life in this context, would have shaped his worldview. In June 1498, about five years later, he's made the second chancellor of Florence, and the following month he's elected secretary to what's called the Ten of War, which is the body that manages Florence's military matters. In 1503, Pisa was revolting against Florentine control, and Part of Machiavelli's plan to get it back under control involved a consultation with Leonardo da Vinci to try to see if they could divert the River Arno, which had been flowing into Pisa, to divert it around Pisa so that the city didn't have any water. And Machiavelli also went on many diplomatic missions, including four to the court of Louis VII of France, at least one of which lasted six months. He also went on two diplomatic missions to the papacy and one to the court of Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. So he was a diplomat. You can see we were talking about the Valois and the Habsburgs. He was going to France on the one side and to the Holy Roman Empire on the other. So he was moving between these what were roughly great powers of the time representing Florence. In 1512, Spanish troops invaded Florentine territory and sacked the city of Prato, and Florence surrendered, and then the Spanish put the Medici back in power after, what is that, 18 years or so, 1494 to 1512. In 1513, the following year, Machiavelli was ousted from the chancery, 
and tried for conspiracy against the Medici. And he was tortured with a device that dislocates the shoulders, and he was imprisoned for a year. So this was basically the end of his political career, and he spent the rest of his life writing. And it is in the same year, 1513, that a draft of the prince appears, though it's not clear exactly when he started writing it. And he also wrote a number of other things, including the Discourses on Livy and the Florentine Histories, as well as throughout his life having written some comedies, carnival songs, and poetry. Niccolo Machiavelli died in 1527 in Florence, the city of his birth, at the age of 58. It's impossible to talk about Machiavelli without getting into the question of the difference between state morality and individual morality. Now, obviously these two are not the same because we permit states to do things that individuals cannot do. States are allowed to kill, individuals are not. And at the same time, a state is capable of all kinds of things that an individual is not capable of. Now, in this text, which Machiavelli wrote addressing Lorenzo de' Medici. Machiavelli recommends some things that are hardly ever recommended in any text anywhere. For example, he openly advocates for deception in certain contexts and for certain things. And that is in part why the word Machiavellian today is used to refer to a very harsh political realism in which the ends justify the means. And though Machiavelli never makes this kind of a qualification. He does make some moral qualifications, and he thinks that certain actions are more and less moral than others, but he never makes the following qualification. We today might think of it in this way, in that if you're seeking your own aggrandizement, if you're seeking your own power and influence and your own wealth and your own glory, it's much harder and probably impossible to justify by any conventional morality applying what Machiavelli recommends in this text. However, and this gets very treacherous, if you are in a position where you are genuinely responsible for the security of the state, and if the security of the state is lost, then there is potentially much more worse things that could happen. You could, for example, descend into civil war. Then, not only would it be justifiable to deceive somebody on an individual level, it would be the moral action, or at least this could be argued to be the case. That's a consequentialist rather than a deontological morality. But if you're choosing between tens of thousands of people dying and somebody not having an accurate view of reality, obviously the second is preferable. Now the problem with that is that's a kind of ticking time bomb scenario, which is almost never the case. And most people who behave in a way that we would call Machiavellian do it for their own glory and power. And unless you happen to find yourself in an amoral political environment, the prince is not exactly a handbook to apply across the board to your life. Though there are plenty of recommendations that are not immoral, they're simply the result of a keen perception, and they could help you stay out of certain kinds of trouble. Another way to look at the prince, rather than a collection of recommendations, is as a view into the way that politics works at the higher levels. 
And that's not necessarily because a professional politician is inherently immoral, but it becomes a kind of a game theory problem in which if you are unwilling to make these kinds of moves, then you are eventually likely to be knocked out of the game by somebody who is willing to make them. Which means that if you see a politician who's had a career of longer than a decade or two, and maybe much shorter than that, it might be if you see a politician who has any public name recognition at all, it's perhaps certain that they have applied methods like this. Though that's hard to know. We need a kind of omniscience that we don't have. And a few years ago, I reread The Social Contract for the first time since my undergrad, and I made note of a passage that mentions Machiavelli, and I hadn't read The Prince at the time, but the passage was still interesting, and I think it's worth looking at here for another way to consider the passages that we're going to be looking at today. So this is Jean-Jacques Rousseau writing in The Social Contract. Quote, Kings desire to be absolute, and men are always crying out to them from afar that the best means of being so is to get themselves loved by their people. This precept is all very well, and even in some respects very true. Unfortunately, it will always be derided at court. The power which comes of a people's love is no doubt the greatest, but it is precarious and conditional, and princes will never rest content with it. The best kings desire to be in a position to be wicked, if they please, without forfeiting their mastery. Political sermonizers may tell them to their heart's content that the people's strength being their own, their first interest is that the people should be prosperous, numerous, and formidable. They are well aware that this is untrue. Their first personal interest is that the people should be weak, wretched, and unable to resist them. I admit that, provided the subjects remained always in submission, the prince's interest would indeed be that it should be powerful, in order that its power, being his own, might make him formidable to his neighbors. But, this interest being merely secondary and subordinate, and strength being incompatible with submission. Princes naturally give the preference always to the principle that is more to their immediate advantage. This is what Samuel put strongly before the Hebrews, and what Machiavelli has clearly shown. He professed to teach kings, but it was the people he really taught. His prince is the book of Republicans." End quote. So Rousseau is saying that you can try to tell governors people who govern, kings and whoever it might be, that it's in their interest that the people be strong, at least so that they could be strong against their neighbors, in case there's a war or something. And Rousseau says that this is untrue and that their first personal interest is that the people should be weak, wretched, and unable to resist them. And he goes on to say that if the people are powerful, then they won't submit. So the king or the prince or the president has no interest in making the people powerful, making them strong. And all of this then puts the prince, Machiavelli's writing, the prince, in a different context. And Rousseau says that he professed to teach kings, but it was the people he really taught. His prince is the Book of Republicans. And who knows if Machiavelli was a secret Republican at the time. Seems unlikely. Seems like he was rather giving honest, earnest advice to this member of the House of Medici. But whatever he meant to do, Rousseau is saying that he was in fact teaching Republicans. He was teaching people who wanted to be able to have some control of their government about how government works. And also 
maybe that however you view your government, this is the way that your government views you. That might be a valuable lesson to take from the prince. That while you might view the government or a particular political party as a moral center or some kind of righteous cause, these institutions view you as a quantity to be controlled. So now we can get into some passages from Machiavelli. And these first few that we're going to be looking at are relatively short, and some of them are some of the most famous lines that are often pulled from Machiavelli and the quotes float around and are used a lot, often by people who have never actually read Machiavelli. Here's one about the problem of revolution. Quote, Men change their rulers willingly, hoping to better themselves, and this hope induces them to take up arms against him who rules, wherein they are deceived, because they afterwards find by experience they have gone from bad to worse. End quote. And here's another one. Quote, He who believes that new benefits will cause great personages to forget old injuries, is deceived, end quote. So if you've injured somebody in the past, particularly a great personage, you won't make them forget that injury by giving them new benefits. They will still remember and probably seek some kind of vengeance for it. Here's another quote. Men ought either to be well-treated or crushed because they can avenge themselves of lighter injuries. Of more serious ones, they cannot. Therefore, the injury that is to be done to a man ought to be of such a kind that one does not stand in fear of revenge, end quote. And this is another good one in general that's not quoted very often. Quote, that deliverance is of no avail, which does not depend on yourself. Those only are reliable, certain, and durable that depend on yourself and your valor, end quote. So don't count on somebody to come and save you or make it happen for you because that's not reliable, certain, or durable. You have to do it for yourself. And by the way, that's just as true in business. If you're selling some product and you get picked up by some giant distribution network, that might be really fun and you might sell a bunch of stuff, but that's not reliable because you could just as easily be dropped by that distribution network and then you'd be back where you started. Clearly the reason why this short little almost 500 year old book is still relevant is because there are many, many lessons to be drawn from it for very different contexts in life. There's lots of metaphors and situations in which you could apply these principles. And by the way, I think I forgot to mention that The Prince wasn't published until 1532, which is actually five years or so after Machiavelli's death. So 2032 will be the 500-year anniversary of the publication of this book. And talking about a certain political situation, this one is a bit longer. Quote, it happens in this, as the physicians say it happens in hectic fever, that in the beginning of the malady it is easy to cure, but difficult to detect. But in the course of time, not having been either detected or treated in the beginning, it becomes easy to detect, but difficult to cure. Thus it happens in affairs of state, for when the evils that arise have been foreseen, which it is only given to a wise man to see, they can be quickly redressed. But when, through not having been foreseen, they have been permitted to grow in a way that everyone can see them, there is no longer a remedy." End quote. So by the time the problem is obvious, it's already too late to fix it. And that success comes to a great extent from seeing a problem when it is small, before it gets bigger. I've always been interested in this phenomenon where whenever there's some large-scale disaster, it often turns out that when investigators look retroactively at what happened leading up to this big thing, 
there were a lot of warning signs. Somebody filed this report, somebody said this, and these were ignored. Now that's more overt. If somebody warns you about a problem in which they have credentials and you ignore it, then that's on you. But it's also often the case that in order for this event to have happened, A, B, and C need to happen simultaneously. And A, B, and C are all events that if they happen by themselves, it's sort of a problem, but it's not too big a deal, or it might not even really be noticeable by itself. And so leading up to the problem, A event happens with certain frequency and they try to correct it or people aren't paying quite enough attention. Somebody files a report, but it's not really listened to. And so that goes on maybe every couple months or so A event happens. And then B event maybe is less common and it's a bigger problem and they're trying to correct it, but not aggressively enough. And then maybe C is something that's never happened before. And then it lines up that A, B, and C all happen on the same day. And it's not just three separate events. It's for some reason, the confluence of these events makes something that becomes a global headline. I'm interested in trying to think about how to know when something is going to be that kind of problem in the future. Because you have limited attentional resources, you can't think about everything. And if you treat everything like it's going to be a problem, then you won't be able to actually deal with anything. But big problems come from smaller ones. This is, for want of a nail, the kingdom was lost. And this isn't exactly what Machiavelli's talking about here, but it's related. That first, it's difficult to detect and easy to cure, and then it's easy to detect and difficult to cure. And these are, of course, problems of management. This is if you're running a company or a state. It's not usually the kinds of things that you deal with in ordinary life, though there are definitely parallels. There are examples we could think of having to do with personal health or a relationship or things like that. And it's only given to a wise man to see, to try to be able to detect these things ahead of time. Later, he gives an account of some decisions that King Louis VII of France made. And after explaining everything, he says, quote, Therefore, Louis made these five errors. He destroyed the minor powers. He increased the strength of one of the greater powers in Italy. He brought in a foreign power. He did not settle in the country. He did not send colonies, end quote. And so let's look at each of these the things he counts as errors are destroying a minor power, increasing the strength of a greater power, bringing in a foreign power, failing to settle in the country, and not sending colonies. Now, the last two are simpler and a little less interesting, I think. The first three are more interesting. If you've ever played Risk, this board game where you're, there's a world map and you're trying to conquer countries and everybody has their armies and you're rolling dice and stuff. There's a dynamic that happens in Risk. As the game progresses, one player starts to become a little more powerful. And then if the other players know what they're doing, they obviously will turn on the stronger player rather than on each other. And this is pretty obvious even if you're 10 years old playing Risk. You can figure out this dynamic that you're looking at the map, there's this big powerful player over here who's got all this territory. And then there's this secondary player who's kind of in a similar position as you is that you're about to get eaten by this big player. Attacking the weaker player is not smart. In that case, both of you need to turn on the bigger player. But then the problem is what inevitably happens is that one of the weaker players then becomes the top dog. And at some point, the formerly powerful player and the other weaker player turn on the new powerful player. And this is why a game of Risk can last for hours and 
months if you keep track of who has what. But the advantage of colored armies on a board is you can see it all very clearly. The blue is very big, the red is smaller, uh oh, we better go after the blue. But what Machiavelli is talking about here is actually very similar. He says the two errors he starts with are he destroyed the minor powers, he increased the strength of one of the greater powers in Italy. So what Machiavelli would recommend in general, I think, is you want to maintain a balance of powers not for maintaining peace, that's what the phrase balance of powers has been used to mean in the past 400 years or so of diplomacy, but to avoid a situation where there is one power who can come at you. And if you try to keep powers relatively even, then they have to fight each other and they can't come after you quite as easily and you potentially have more influence. But it's interesting that he also lists bringing in a foreign power as an error that this is something that you shouldn't do. This isn't that surprising, but you can imagine how it would be tempting if you pretend that you are a 15th century or 16th century prince in Italy of some Italian principality or something, and you're facing off with the next city over, essentially. You have control of one city, and the next city over is making war on you in some way. It could be very tempting to say, oh, I'll, I'll take some help from France, and we can settle this in a day. But then the problem is obviously you're now beholden to France because they did a lot of the work and you've lost control of your autonomy. Your self-governance is going to be in jeopardy as a result, or at least the result of how this conquest now turns out. That's going to be in jeopardy. And I wish I could find it. In the summer of 2011 or 2012, very early in the Syrian war, I wrote a little article just for myself, I don't know, I think I sent it to my friends or something, about the difference between the situation in Syria and the situation in Libya. And I predicted, and I don't like to make this kind of prediction, and I didn't like to make it at the time, but I predicted that because of all the international interest in Syria, because of the alliance with Russia, with Iran, because of U.S. interest, because of Israeli interest, that this was going to last a lot longer than the conflict in Libya, and it was going to be hotter, it was going to be more violent, because it had international forces involved in it. And when you bring in international forces, you bring in their economic power, their military power, and it can expand a conflict a lot. And I used to think, oh, that's too bad for certain countries who are trying to get their footing now in this more enclosed global political environment where countries more easily meddle in each other's affairs, whereas four or five hundred years ago, it was harder to do that. And so a country trying to get set up, trying to establish itself, had less international meddling. But then I read about the Thirty Years' War. And the Thirty Years' War is essentially a German civil war, kind of, except there was no Germany at the time. But it's in the area of what is today Germany largely. But it involved powers from across Europe. It involved Sweden, it involved Spain, it involved France. It was very complicated by outside forces trying to get their peace in one way or another. So this isn't really a new dynamic. Anyway, that on the danger of bringing foreign powers into a conflict. The next passage is, quote, When cities or countries are accustomed to live under a prince and his family is exterminated, they, being on the one hand accustomed to obey and on the other hand not having the old prince, cannot agree in making one from amongst themselves, and they do not know how to govern themselves. For this reason, they are very slow to take up arms, and a prince can gain them to himself and secure them much more easily. But in republics there is more vitality, greater hatred, 
and more desire for vengeance, which will never permit them to allow the memory of their former liberty to rest, so that the safest way is to destroy them or to reside there." End quote. So he's saying in conquering a place that's accustomed to being ruled by one guy, essentially, it's easier to take over because those people don't know how to govern themselves. They're slower to take up arms. So you can just put something in place of the old guy. You exterminate the old ruling family. He just says that very blasé. When cities or countries are accustomed to live under a prince and his family is exterminated. And then he goes on. So that's relatively simple. But when you're dealing with a republic, you have more vitality, greater hatred, and more desire for vengeance, which will never permit them to allow the memory of their former liberty to rest. So you have a tougher fight, and the safest way is either to destroy them or reside there. The next one is... Quote, men walking almost always in paths beaten by others and following by imitation their deeds are yet unable to keep entirely to the ways of others or attain to the power of those they imitate. A wise man ought always to follow the paths beaten by great men and to imitate those who have been supreme so that if his ability does not equal theirs, at least it will savor of it. Let him act like the clever archers who, designing to hit the mark which yet appears too far distant and knowing the limits to which the strength of their bow attains, take aim much higher than the mark not to reach by their strength or arrow to so great a height, but to be able with the aid of so high an aim to hit the mark they wish to reach, end quote. So that's touching on a metaphor that's relatively cliche now, not the archer metaphor, but the notion that if you aim high, you'll end up where you want to. But I also like that because when you read history, it's fun to admire these great figures of the past and say, oh, how can I imitate that? How can I emulate what he did? But it sometimes feels like this is a modern phenomenon, like we're reaching into the past for guidance because maybe we feel like we've lost our way in modernity. But here Machiavelli's talking about doing exactly that 500 years ago, about seeking role models in history and trying to emulate what you like about them. Here's another one, quote, there is nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more uncertain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. Because the innovator has for enemies all those who have done well under the old conditions, and lukewarm defenders in those who may do well under the new. This coolness arises partly from fear of the opponents, who have the laws on their side, and partly from the incredulity of men who do not readily believe in new things until they have had a long experience of them. Thus it happens that whenever those who are hostile have the opportunity to attack, they do it like partisans, while the others defend lukewarmly, in such wise that the prince is endangered along with them." End quote. So this is a dynamic that's true not only of revolutionary politics, but of trying to make even changes in an organization or in a town or in a culture, which is that you have against you everybody who benefits from the existing system. And the people who are with you only feel like they might benefit under the new system. And so when there's a conflict, the people who are fighting for the system not to change have a much greater interest and they fight very hard. Whereas the people who are fighting for the system to change are a little bit careful. They're not sure if it's even going to work, and if it works, that it, will it even be good for them? So they fight very mildly. And this may be an underlying dynamic that is part of why things change so slowly and rarely. Most of the time, things continue to go as they have done, and when they change, it's a big deal. That's the exception. And this text is full of nice historical examples 
but they're often a little complicated, and he explains them very offhand because I guess he expects his readers to know who he's talking about. And it doesn't take a lot of work to go and figure out who he's talking about and what was going on at the time, but I chose to leave most of those out of this podcast because they take a little more explanation, and I'm not really going into the history of Florence. I'm talking about what lessons we can draw from the prince, but there are a few that are applicable and interesting to look at by themselves. And a lot of the book talks specifically about Cesare Borgia, and the House of Borgia is, of course, an important Italian noble family that hopefully we'll have a reason to go into in more depth in the future. They're quite interesting. And Cesare Borgia was a cardinal from that family, and his fight for power is a big topic in The Prince. There's a lot of examples from his career. And this next passage is talking about some decisions he made. And Machiavelli says that the people called him Duke Valentino. And so here he's referred to as the Duke. So when he says the Duke, he's talking about Cesare Borgia. Quote, When the Duke occupied the Romagna, he found it under the rule of weak masters, who rather plundered their subjects than ruled them, and gave them more cause for disunion than for union, so that the country was full of robbery, quarrels, and every kind of violence. And so, wishing to bring back peace and obedience to authority, he considered it necessary to give it a good governor. Thereupon he promoted Messer Ramiro de Orco, a swift and cruel man, to whom he gave the fullest power. This man, in a short time, restored peace and unity with the greatest success. Afterwards, the duke considered that it was not advisable to confer such excessive authority, for he had no doubt but that he would become odious. So he set up a court of judgment in the country under a most excellent president, wherein all cities had their advocates. And because he knew that the past severity had caused some hatred against himself, so, to clear himself in the minds of the people and gain them entirely to himself, he desired to show that if any cruelty had been practiced, it had not originated with him, but in the natural sternness of the minister. Under this pretense, he took Ramiro, and one morning caused him to be executed and left on the piazza at Cesena with the block and a bloody knife at his side. The barbarity of this spectacle caused the people to be at once satisfied and dismayed. End quote. So, to summarize, Cesare Borgia occupies a very unruly place that was badly governed, and so there's a lot of crime there, essentially. And then he brings in this guy, very heavy-handed, tough guy to get things under control. And he does, but then because there were some excesses, there was some cruelty in getting things under control, Borgia then has this guy executed, the guy who cleaned up the mess. Borgia doesn't want to be blamed for anything, and so he gets rid of him. He has him executed. This is a script that has been replayed a million times in a million ways, even since this example 500 years ago. And it's exactly what we mean when we say Machiavellian, this kind of thing. And something we can draw from this is that if there is some kind of debacle or something bad that happened, and you associate some name with that debacle as the person responsible, you actually have no idea if that's the person responsible. It might be somebody else, but it was made to look like it was that guy for some reason. Here's the next one, quote, He who considers it necessary to secure himself in his new principality, to win friends, to overcome either by force or fraud, to make himself beloved and feared by the people, to be followed and revered by the soldiers, 
to exterminate those who have power or reason to hurt him, to change the old order of things for new, to be severe and gracious, magnanimous and liberal, to destroy a disloyal soldiery and to create new, to maintain friendship with kings and princes in such a way that they must help him with zeal and offend him with caution, cannot find a more lively example than the actions of this man. Only can he be blamed for the selection of Julius II, in whom he made a bad choice. Because, as is said, not being able to elect a pope to his own mind, he could have hindered any other from being elected pope, and he ought never to have consented to the election of any cardinal whom he had injured or had cause to fear him if they become pontiffs. And there he's talking about Cesare Borgia. So Machiavelli lists all the things that he does well, and he says, if you're looking for an example of somebody who does all these things, look at this guy. And he criticizes him on this one point of allowing Julius II to become pope, because apparently this was somebody who Cesare Borgia had injured in some way, and though he didn't have the ability to get his guy, somebody that would be favorable for him to be the Pope, Machiavelli says he could have just obstructed and made it so that nobody was elected Pope, or at least not somebody who he had injured. So this is a little bit of armchair politicking from Machiavelli. He wasn't in the situation, but he's praising Cesare Borgia. He likes him a lot, and he's criticizing him on a very particular point. And also, as we saw, Machiavelli was a guy who himself had some experience, though his experience ended with him being imprisoned and tortured, so he was less successful than Cesare Borgia. But still, he was somebody who had been in this arena and tried to make good decisions in it. And it's interesting to see him commenting on another guy another contemporary from that time period. And as we'll see, Machiavelli does have a hierarchy of more and less moral actions in his mind. He's not completely amoral. And in chapter 8, which is titled Concerning Those Who Have Obtained a Principality by Wickedness, he gives some examples of some guys who got power by what he would call wickedness. And he talks a little bit about the moral problems with that. So we can look at that now. He gives an example from history, quote, Agathocles, the Sicilian, became king of Syracuse not only from a private, but from a low and abject position. This man, the son of a potter, through all the changes in his fortunes, always led an infamous life. Nevertheless, he accompanied his infamies with so much ability of mind and body that having devoted himself to the military profession, he rose through its ranks to be praetor of Syracuse. Being established in that position, and having deliberately resolved to make himself prince and to seize by violence, without obligation to others, that which had been conceded to him by assent, he came to an understanding for this purpose with Amilcar, the Carthaginian, who with his army was fighting in Sicily. One morning, he assembled the people and the Senate of Syracuse, as if he had to discuss with them things relating to the Republic. And at a given signal, the soldiers killed all the senators and the richest of the people. These dead, he seized and held the princedom of that city without any civil commotion. End quote. So there's this poor guy, son of a potter, low class, joins the military, smart, strong, moves up through the ranks, becomes praetor, which is a kind of magistrate. Then one morning he calls for the senate and the rich people in the city to get together for an assembly, and he has them all killed and then he has control of the city. This is one example of what Machiavelli calls wickedness. And he gives another example of another guy doing something similar at a dinner party, where first everybody's at the party, and then they start talking, and then he says, well, this isn't a good topic for this room. Why don't we go into this other room, and we can talk about it there. And when they go into the other room, he has everybody killed very suddenly. And in this next passage, we have Machiavelli contemplating the morality of doing this. Quote, 
Yet it cannot be called talent to slay fellow citizens, to deceive friends, to be without faith, without mercy, without religion. Such methods may gain empire, but not glory. Still, if the courage of Agathocles in entering into and extricating himself from dangers be considered, together with his greatness of mind in enduring and overcoming hardships, it cannot be seen why he should be esteemed less than the most notable captain. Nevertheless, his barbarous cruelty and inhumanity with infinite wickedness do not permit him to be celebrated among the most excellent men." So he says, on the one hand, though he did this terrible thing, it took some capacity, it took some skill and planning and courage to do it, which is noteworthy, but he still cannot be celebrated among the most excellent men. So Machiavelli gives these guys some rank in his view, but it's not the top rank. It's better if you can avoid doing this. Then we have a longer passage in which he answers a question about Agathocles that might help us to have a more nuanced view of how a successful dictatorship is able to continue over the course of 30 years however successful a dictatorship can be. That is, a dictatorship that doesn't collapse. Quote, Some may wonder how it can happen that Agathocles and his like, after infinite treacheries and cruelties, should live for long, secure in his country, and defend himself from external enemies, and never be conspired against by his citizens, seeing that many others, by means of cruelty, have never been able, even in peaceful times, to hold the state, still less in the doubtful times of war. I believe that this follows from severities being badly or properly used. Those may be called properly used, if of evil it is possible to speak well, that are applied at one blow and are necessary to one's security, and that are not persisted in afterwards unless they can be turned to the advantage of the subjects. The badly employed are those which, notwithstanding they may be few in the commencement, multiply with time rather than decrease. Those who practice the first system are able, by aid of God or man, to mitigate in some degree their rule, as Agathocles did. It is impossible for those who follow the other to maintain themselves. Hence it is to be remarked that in seizing a state, the usurper ought to examine closely into all those injuries which it is necessary for him to inflict, and to do them all at one stroke, so as not to have to repeat them daily, and thus by not unsettling men he will be able to reassure them, and win them to himself by benefits. He who does otherwise, either from timidity or evil advice, is always compelled to keep the knife in his hand. Neither can he rely on his subjects, nor can they attach themselves to him, owing to their continued and repeated wrongs. For injuries ought to be done all at one time, so that, being tasted less, they offend less. Benefits ought to be given little by little, so that the flavor of them may last longer. And above all things, a prince ought to live amongst his people in such a way that no unexpected circumstances, whether of good or evil, shall make him change. Because if the necessity for this comes in troubled times, you are too late for harsh measures, and mild ones will not help you, for they will be considered as forced from you, and no one will be under any obligation to you for them." So he's saying that the way that somebody like Agathocles is able to stay in power for a long time is by limiting the cruelties that they have to do to what they view as being necessary, and most of all, to doing them quickly and all at once, and then not continuing them. Whereas the favors that you do should be done little by little and over a long period of time so that they're easier to remember. Because somebody who's always being cruel has to always 
keep the knife in his hand, is the phrase he uses. And he ends with this comment that the prince should govern in a way such that no circumstance would make him change how he governed. So that, for example, if he suddenly uncovered an assassination plot against him, he wouldn't then suddenly have to dramatically change what he'd been doing. He could continue to do what he'd been doing because what he was doing before was stern enough and also enticing enough. Because if you're reacting to the situation, he says at that moment, it's too late for harsh measures and mild ones will not help you. That if you're doing something harsh, it's too late for that. This is the thing he was talking about before, that once the problem is visible, there's no cure for it. That's not totally true. That's a little bit fatalistic, but it's much better to deal with the problem beforehand. But at that moment, harsh measures won't help. And if you try to do something nice, it will be obvious to people that you're doing it because you're compelled to do it. And so it won't have any effect, or at least it won't have the desired effect. Here's another one, quote, there will always be in doubtful times a scarcity of men whom he can trust. For such a prince cannot rely upon what he observes in quiet times, when citizens have need of the state, because then everyone agrees with him. They all promise, and when death is far distant, they all wish to die for him. But in troubled times, when the state has need of its citizens, then he finds but few. And so much the more is this experiment dangerous, inasmuch as it can only be tried once. Therefore, a wise prince ought to adopt such a course that his citizens will always in every sort and kind of circumstance have need of the state and of him, and then he will always find them faithful." End quote. There is a cliché about fair-weather friends, about people who want to be helpful to you when things are going good, they want to be around you when you're on the rise, and when things go badly, they abandon you. And this is something that everybody's aware of, not that everybody does that, but a lot of the people you consider friends might do that to you, even some of the ones you might not expect. And there will be a smaller number who will stick around. But Machiavelli is not so fatalistic about this problem. What he says is that the way to get around it is to make it so that your citizens and the people around you are dependent on you in a certain way, so that when you need them, they don't have the option of abandoning you. Which again, that's a rule for politics, not for friendship. And it might sound harsh, but that's how you get around that problem of people abandoning you when times get tough, because in matters of state, especially in 15th and 16th century Italy, things getting tough might mean that you end up dead. So if your life is on the line, you might consider such a route. This next one was interesting because it's describing the cities of Germany. Quote, the cities of Germany are absolutely free. They own but little country around them and they yield obedience to the emperor when it suits them. Nor do they fear this or any other power they may have near them, because they are fortified in such a way that everyone thinks the taking of them by assault would be tedious and difficult, seeing they have proper ditches and walls, they have sufficient artillery, and they always keep in public depots enough for one year's eating, drinking, and firing. And beyond this, to keep the people quiet and without loss to the state, they always have the means of giving work to the community in those labors that are the life and strength of the city, and on the pursuit of which the people are supported. They also hold military exercises in repute, and moreover, have many ordinances to uphold them." End quote. I'm interested in this seeming contradiction of how, of the great nations of Europe, nations referring to groups of people who have a shared language and history and a culture, not necessarily what we would call a country or government, but a nation, a group of people. You have the Russian, French, and English nations all have a state that's relatively old, whereas 
the Germans and Italians, their state, their overarching modern state is relatively young. They're both dated to the late 19th century. And there's nothing in particular that would hold these two nations back. Obviously, the Italians are, to a great extent, the origin of the Renaissance, never mind the Roman Empire. And the Germans have a long list of scientists and mathematicians and musicians. If you ask me, all the greatest musicians in history are German. Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, though of course there are many others who are not German. But it's interesting that the arguably the top four are all German. But then you have mathematicians and scientists, you have Gauss and Leibniz and Kepler that are from Germany really major people, and never mind all the Italians we could list, and yet their state came much later. And one possible explanation of this is that we know about the Italian city-states. For example, we've talked about Florence today, but when we looked at Dante, we were also talking about Florence and other Italian city-states. I wasn't aware that there were German cities that were defended in this way. This way that Machiavelli talks about, that they have all these fortifications and they have ditches and walls and sufficient artillery and they always keep in public depots enough for one year's eating, drinking, and firing. And so that everyone thinks that the taking of them by assault would be tedious and difficult, that it's not worth it to try. And how German is that for them to be always so prepared and to have all their cities so well defended? And so in the cases of Italy and Germany, it's possible that the vitality of the city-states actually held back the overstate, the state that was going to govern the whole country because the city-states were more powerful than they were in England and France, for example. So if we view the nation-state that people speaking one language should generally have one state rather than a bunch of little sub-states, if we view that as an advancement, as a step forward, which is probably reasonable, but we could discuss it, then Italy and Germany, and this is speculation, but it's a little theory that we could work with, being advanced in one stage in the development of government, being advanced in the city-state stage of government actually held back the unification of their nation-state by a couple hundred years. Anyway, I had never heard a description of medieval German states being uniquely well-maintained, as Machiavelli talks about here, and that's consistent with what people think of Germans in general and what people's experience with them in general is, so it makes sense. He says a lot about mercenaries and auxiliaries, but the general message is that you should not use them, and instead you should have your own guns, have your own arms as a state. And he gives an example that I hadn't heard of, of John the Sixth Cante Cusenos. He says, quote, The emperor of Constantinople, to oppose his neighbors, sent 10,000 Turks into Greece, who, on the war being finished, were not willing to quit. This was the beginning of the servitude of Greece to the infidels. End quote. And that emperor, Cantacuzenos, lived in the 14th century, whereas the Ottoman conquest of Greece is generally thought to be in the late 15th century. But apparently there were a lot of Turkish mercenaries there who were sent in by a Greek emperor, by a Byzantine emperor. He used Turks to fight against other Greeks, and then the Turks just stayed there. So this is one of the many examples he gives of why auxiliaries and mercenaries are not good. He also says, quote, If the first disaster to the Roman Empire should be examined, it will be found to have commenced only with the enlisting of the Goths, because from that time the vigor of the Roman Empire began to decline, and all that valor which had raised it passed away to others. 
I conclude, therefore, that no principality is secure without having its own forces. On the contrary, it is entirely dependent on good fortune, not having the valor which in adversity would defend it. And it has always been the opinion and judgment of wise men that nothing can be so uncertain or unstable as fame or power not founded on its own strength. And one's own forces are those which are composed either of subjects, citizens, or dependents. All others are mercenaries or auxiliaries. End quote. So that's a summary of his position on mercenaries and auxiliaries. And he says that the decline of the Roman Empire began with the enlisting of the Goths. That's another example that he gives. We now have a long passage about the importance of the study of war. Quote, A prince ought to have no other aim or thought, nor select anything else for his study, than war and its rules and discipline. For this is the sole art that belongs to him who rules, and it is of such force that it not only upholds those who are born princes, but it often enables men to rise from a private station to that rank. And on the contrary, it is seen that when princes have thought more of ease than of arms, they have lost their states. And the first cause of your losing it is to neglect this art. And what enables you to acquire a state is to be master of the art. And skipping ahead a little bit, Philippemon, prince of the Achaeans, among other praises which writers have bestowed on him, is commended because in time of peace he never had anything in his mind but the rules of war. And when he was in the country with friends, he often stopped and reasoned with them. If the enemy would be upon that hill, and we should find ourselves here with our army, with whom would be the advantage? How should one best advance to meet him, keeping the ranks? If we should wish to retreat, how ought we to pursue? And he would set forth to them, as he went, all the chances that could befall an army. He would listen to their opinion and state his, confirming it with reasons, so that by these continual discussions there could never arise in time of war any unexpected circumstances that he could not deal with. But to exercise the intellect, the prince should read histories, and study there the actions of illustrious men, to see how they have borne themselves in war, to examine the causes of their victories and defeat, so as to avoid the latter and imitate the former. And above all, do as an illustrious man did, who took as an exemplar one who had been praised and famous before him, and whose achievements and deeds he always kept in his mind. As it is said, Alexander the Great imitated Achilles, Caesar, Alexander, Scipio, Cyrus. And whoever reads the life of Cyrus, written by Xenophon, will recognize afterwards in the life of Scipio how that imitation was his glory, and how in chastity, affability, humanity, and liberality Scipio conformed to those things which have been written of Cyrus by Xenophon. A wise prince ought to observe some such rules, and never in peaceful times stand idle, but increase his resources with industry in such a way that they may be available to him in adversity, so that if fortune chances it may find him prepared to resist her blows." End quote. So there's a lot going on there. One is this discussion of how to be ready for any military situation by being in different circumstances and imagining them and imagining what you would do and trying to plan for it. And then there is the importance of reading histories and also this idea of having a model, a role model from history that you like and you try to imitate. And also this idea of building up your resources, building up your capability when you don't need it so that when you need it, it's there. Being ready, being prepared, thinking ahead, not waiting until something bad happens and then it's much too late to do anything about it. And you're not capable of doing anything about it because you hadn't prepared. And particularly that passage about imagining different military situations touches on a certain kind of knowledge. And it's a kind of knowledge I think is similar to playing chess or to learning a language and military situations, but we could think of other examples. It's this kind of knowledge. People imagine that somebody who is good at a language or is good at playing chess is good in some abstract way 
at chess or languages. And there's certainly a little bit of that. But what it mostly is, is that someone who speaks a language at a high level has encountered almost any situation that can happen in a conversation or in a text. They've seen it before already. It's not new because they've already encountered it. When you encounter something for the very first time, it usually slows you down. You have to stop and figure out what is this. You have to use a different part of your brain. But if you've already encountered it, you can react kind of automatically because you already know how to deal with it. And the same is true of chess. Somebody who plays chess very well, and I don't play chess very well, is somebody who has already encountered all kinds of different combinations and situations. And so when they see a move, it's very unlikely that it's a genuinely new situation that they haven't encountered before. And of course, the likelihood that this happens increases toward the end of a game because the potential new combinations increase as you depart from that initial setup. But anyway, making contingency plans, which is what Machiavelli is talking about Philippemen doing. The reason why the military spends so much time doing this is because they don't want to be surprised. If this happens, we're going to do that. If that happens, we're going to do this. And also, politically or in business, if you're managing something, it's good to be proactively thinking forward, trying to imagine, what am I going to do if this happens? What am I going to do if that happens? So that when it happens, the likelihood that you get that new situation, deer in the headlights, your brain has to slow down and figure this out, is a lot less. If you're in business, you know, you should take the time to try to figure it out, but it's still worthwhile to have thought about the situation beforehand, and you don't usually have to make a snap decision about it. In military affairs, or in politics, or in just your personal security when you're walking on the street, it's more likely that you'll have to make a quick decision. Though in politics, it can also be slower, and in that case, having done this forethought and having this experience is going to be critical. Because when you're speaking a language, you don't have time to slow down and think about it. Or if you do, that's somebody who's learning the language. And you have to look up the word or think about it for a second. Or if you're playing chess and you're playing slowly, that's again, that's a weaker chess player than somebody who has seen this two dozen times before and they know exactly what to do. Here's another relatively famous passage from Machiavelli. Quote, Upon this a question arises, whether it be better to be loved than feared, or feared than loved. It may be answered that one should wish to be both, but, because it is difficult to unite them in one person, it is much safer to be feared than loved, when, of the two, either must be dispensed with. Because this is to be asserted in general of men, that they are ungrateful, fickle, false, cowardly, covetous, and as long as you succeed, they are yours entirely. They will offer you their blood, property, life, and children, as is said above, when the need is far distant, but when it approaches, they turn against you. And that prince who, relying entirely on their promises, has neglected other precautions, is ruined, because friendships that are obtained by payments, and not by greatness or nobility of mind, may indeed be earned, but they are not secured and in time of need cannot be relied upon. And men have less scruple in offending one who is beloved than one who is feared. For love is preserved by the link of obligation which, owing to the baseness of men, is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear preserves you by a dread of punishment which never fails." End quote. The first sentence or two of that passage is often quoted to show what a bad guy or a tough guy Machiavelli was, but the rest of the paragraph describes human nature, that the reason for this is because people are a certain way, and if you need their help, 
if you're dealing in affairs of state, a state is essentially a group of people. And if you're one person facing off against a state, against a group of people, you will lose. So you need a group of people. And if you need them, if you need them to stick with you when things are difficult, then he's saying that practically this is the only way that you can really rely on that. And you might say that you could cultivate an ideology, a, a vision of the world that people feel very committed to. And arguably, modern patriotism is, to a certain extent, that is something that holds people together even when times get tough so that you don't have to bully them in place. But that still is just a different answer to this question of what to do about the problem of men being foundationally ungrateful, fickle, false, cowardly, and covetous. What do you do about that problem? You have to address it somehow. And Machiavelli says it's better to be feared than loved if you have to pick one. Because otherwise, when things get difficult, everybody will just abandon you. Machiavelli writes, quote, Everyone admits how praiseworthy it is in a prince to keep faith and to live with integrity and not with craft. Nevertheless, our experience has been that those princes who have done great things have held good faith of little account and have known how to circumvent the intellect of men by craft, and in the end have overcome those who have relied on their word. You must know there are two ways of contesting, the one by law, the other by force. The first method is proper to men, the second to beasts. But because the first is frequently not sufficient, it is necessary to have recourse to the second. Therefore, it is necessary for a prince to understand how to avail himself of the beast and the man. This has been figuratively taught to princes by ancient writers, who describe how Achilles and many other princes of old were given to the centaur Chiron to nurse, who brought them up in his discipline, which means solely that, as they had for a teacher one who was half beast and half man, so it is necessary for a prince to know how to make use of both natures, and that one without the other is not durable. A prince, therefore, being compelled knowingly to adopt the beast, ought to choose the fox and the lion, because the lion cannot defend himself against snares, and the fox cannot defend himself against wolves. Therefore, it is necessary to be a fox to discover the snares, and a lion to terrify the wolves." End quote. He later writes, quote, It makes him contemptible to be considered fickle, frivolous, effeminate, mean-spirited, irresolute, from all of which a prince should guard himself as from a rock, and he should endeavor to show in his actions greatness, courage, gravity, and fortitude." End quote. And chapter 26 of the book is titled, An Exhortation to Liberate Italy from the Barbarians. And if we remember that this was all written, addressed to Lorenzo de' Medici, it's possible that Machiavelli was writing this in order to put this tag at the end, to encourage Lorenzo to try to liberate Italy from the barbarians. And he gave him this guidebook on how best to do it. And he says, quote, Although lately some spark may have been shown by one, which made us think he was ordained by God for our redemption, nevertheless it was afterwards seen, in the height of his career, that fortune rejected him, so that Italy, left as without life, waits for him who shall yet heal her wounds and put an end to the ravaging and plundering of Lombardy, to the swindling and taxing of the kingdom and of Tuscany, and cleanse those sores that for long have festered, it is seen how she entreats God to send someone who shall deliver her from these wrongs and barbarous insolencies. It is seen also that she is ready and willing to follow a banner if only someone will raise it." Quote. Those are the passages that I wanted to show you from Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince. It's a short read, and there's a lot more in there, a lot more that we could discuss. 
So if any of that caught your attention, I encourage you to go and read it, if you have not already, of course. In its best form, we might think of the Machiavellian worldview as a bold answer to the trolley problem. The trolley problem is, of course, this thought experiment in which there's a train going on a track to hit three people, and you have the ability to pull a switch so that it only hits one, should you pull the switch or not. And the problem here is, by pulling the switch, you are now an active participant. You have caused the death of the one person, but you've also avoided the death of three. And assuming all four of these people are equal in every way, maybe that's a gain, maybe it's not. That's part of the debate. And the reason why we're so interested in politics is because it often, or perhaps always, concerns people's lives, or at the very least, their livelihoods, which in the long run could mean their life. And if you're being honest and scrupulous and you have a position of influence where such actions of yours might well affect the overall, the common good, the public interest, then what you have in, for example, having one person killed or deceiving someone for the sake of the serious and real measurable betterment of the kingdom is you have the trolley problem. You could let things be bad and maybe three people die, but you didn't do anything bad in the process. Or you could knock somebody off the chessboard and perhaps save thousands of lives by doing it. It's too simple to say that keeping your hands clean is always the most moral action, especially if you are a governor, if you are a person who governs. And of course, all of this is purely theoretical. This is a philosophical thought experiment. But Machiavelli was trying to address the world as he saw it to be. He wasn't trying to address the world as he wished it was. And though we use the word Machiavellian to refer to a kind of harshness or toughness, and it might often be the wrong path, and especially, as I said, if you're just trying to get yourself rich, there's pretty much no moral argument for that, or to get yourself powerful. And if nothing else, Machiavelli offers some very practical advice just on how to navigate with other people who are self-interested and might deceive you. And as we started out by looking at Rousseau talking about, this is a great way to understand how high-level government works, is to acknowledge, even just as a voter, as an ordinary citizen, that whether you like it or not, this stuff is going on. It's not necessarily going on all the time, but it happens sometimes. And if you understand how it works, you might be able to spot it sometimes in glimpses through the information we're able to access as members of the public. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed putting this together. I love reading these books. I love talking about them. And it's all the more fun knowing that there are thoughtful people like you out there listening. So thank you for taking the time. I hope you feel like you benefited in some way. These are a lot of work to put together, but I love doing it. And if you enjoyed it, I do hope you'll go over to my website, valrathpublishing.com, pick up a copy of the edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that I printed. It's got original cover art, 97 footnotes that explain some of the more obscure historical, cultural, artistic references that Mary Shelley uses, some of the vocabulary that she uses. I have it at a good price, free shipping anywhere in the United States, excellent print quality. I'm very happy with how it came out. So I hope you'll go over there and pick up a copy for yourself if you haven't read it, for a member of your family or for one of your friends if you have, makes an excellent gift. And 
Frankenstein is really a story that's only becoming more relevant as time goes on, given what it has to say about the dangers of science, of technology. It's really the original Black Mirror. It was Black Mirror 200 years before anyone had even thought of Black Mirror. So I hope you'll go check that out. Farewell until next time. Take care and happy reading.